listening to That'll Preach. Thanks for tuning in. We've got an interview today with Chris Castaldo. I'm excited for this interview. Chris is a fellow at the Center for Pastor Theologians and a visiting professor at the London School of Theology. He has authored many books. He's authored The Unfinished Reformation with Greg Allison. Also, he authored a book called Talking with Catholics About the Gospel, and most recently, The Upside Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. He's also published a small booklet available through the Davenant Institute about why Protestants convert uh, particularly to Roman Catholicism. So, Chris, I appreciate you being on the show. You're also a pastor, a lead pastor at New Covenant Church in Naperville. So, I uh, appreciate you uh, being here with us. Thanks, Brian. It's my pleasure. So, I mentioned the book that you put together with Brad Littlejohn, uh, Why Protestants Convert. And it was a book about Protestants, you know, swimming the Tiber, as they say, and becoming Roman Catholic. And as I was reading through it, I was really it was really helpful. It was a really helpful resource. And then I kind of looked you up and I found out you've been writing about Roman Catholicism quite extensively and doing a lot of work on that. So maybe just on a personal level, what got you interested in studying Roman Catholicism, wanting to engage with Roman Catholicism and understanding why Protestants are compelled to become Roman Catholic? Yeah, well, I was raised Roman Catholic from Italian extraction from Long Island, New York. You had no choice. You had no I choice. had no choice. Right. And it was a great experience. Monsignor Tom Spadaro was a fabulous priest and pastor to us, knew us by name, cared for us, taught us the faith, uh, at least in terms of the, the Trinity and deity of Christ and so forth. Um, I, I did not embrace Jesus personally as a Catholic. I recognize that some do. Um, and in my case, however, I didn't. So at age 23, I was converted uh, rather clearly. And that started a whole new trajectory in the in the Protestant world. So that's it's my experience. It's my story. A lot of what I've done over the years, frankly, has been aimed at helping other people who have come out of the Catholic Church approach their friends and loved ones who are Catholic in constructive ways, in, in, with intentionality, as we present the gospel, uh, to, if you will, not make the same mistakes I made as a new convert, you know. Um, so that's probably the common thread, is, is trying to serve the conversation in a way that enables us to embody and proclaim the truth of Christ and the grace of Christ together. That's really helpful. I mean, is and I guess it being part of your personal story is a, is a strong motivating factor. Now, you, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor for a while. What has your experience been like with Protestants wanting to convert to Catholicism? Has that been something that's occurred frequently, or is that something you know? What What are those experiences like for you pastorally now that you know you're in that position? Yeah. There's, so there's movement in both ways, and as you said. This this work with Brad Littlejohn is concerned with individuals who leave Protestantism for the Catholic Church. My own experience, most people I know, most people I've served have moved in the other direction. Right. That's been the focus of my ministry. Uh, 2009, I wrote a book titled Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a Former Catholic, which I consider the reasons why someone would move out of the, the Roman Catholic Church for Protestantism. I conducted 
a survey of former Catholics around the country, conducted focus groups, identified three basic reasons why, and they are uh, grace over guilt, relationship over rules, and then thirdly, the notion that my calling extends to every part of my life, what we, we sometimes call the priesthood of believers. And so what I'm doing from day to day matters spiritually to God, you know, so, so that's been the focus of my work. Um, but then in my research, my doctoral research, I considered John Henry Newman, who's yeah. of course the, you know, the quintessential convert to Roman Catholicism. So that uh, created an interest for me. I began to write on it. And um, it was in that context where I started talking with Brad. Brad really has more of a front row seat to people who are leaving Protestantism for Rome. Uh, Brad's an academic, and, uh, and and so there there is often a desire for one to engage the conversation in a different way. The, the concerns are different. So the Catholic tr tradition, for example, has a... Uh, a deep, robust tradition in moral theology and jurisprudence and uh, attentiveness to the classics and all of that. There's an attractional pull there that is, I think, responsible for um, the conversion of many to Roman Catholicism. And that's part of what this book is concerned with. It's really interesting among sort of very intellectual Protestants or philosophically engaged Protestants, that seems to be, when I think about friends of mine who have considered Catholicism or who have converted, it was it was sort of this long intellectual process of like reading Aquinas and church fathers and all these types of things. And uh, when you described something in, in, in the book, it was, it was called conversionitis. That was kind of an interesting term. And I'm wondering, flesh that out. What what is the phenomenon of of conversionitis, and what are the factors that that lead to it? Yeah. So this work started as a, a blog series by that title, which Brad created, and it's it's concerned with the reasons why people convert, what motivates them, and so we identify three basic reasons, and they are psychological, theological, and sociological. When a person crosses the Tiber, it's it's typically for a number of those reasons. But the center of gravity will likely be under one or two. Um, and so we sort of unpack each of those. In, in the case of psychological, for instance, we talk about the desire for authority. We call father hunger. Um, the the so-called holy deficit, sorry, holiness deficit disorder. That, that very often in the evangelical Protestant tradition, there's a casual approach to God. It, it It's very far from the Isaiah 6 experience of a divine holiness, reverence, and awe. Some uh, An experience that you often find in the Catholic Church in ways that are not true of modern evangelicalism. Um, the inner ring, which is sort of what you were referring to earlier, Brian, that we, you know, we want to be part of a sociology that is serious minded and reflective. And uh, very often you find those resources in the Catholic tradition in ways that are not true of Protestantism. Um, now, our the burden of our case is to say you do, in fact, have all the intellectual resources you could want or need in the Protestant tradition. And, and Brad and I are, are addressing it from a more reformed point of view. 
Um, but in terms of popular Christianity, that's very often the way it is perceived. And so we go through each of those, uh, the theological issues concerning assurance and being in touch with history and tangible grace, and reflect on um, challenges and opportunities for those who are considering conversion on account of those reasons. Talk about the authority issue, because I think that is a big thing for people who really, really want this sense of certainty. I know questions about who determines the canon. How can you have all these various interpretations, uh, all these types of things? That one, I think, is a very common thread and one that I understand that. Uh, th th this, you, I guess you mentioned that this sort of father hunger, but that's also tied to just wanting some kind of definitive stance on things so that people aren't con continually re-adjudicating doctrines and thinking through these types of things. What drives that quest for certainty in your mind? Yeah, you know, so as a pastor, I have a front row seat to the brokenness and fragmentation of families, the, the prevalence of divorce, and what that does for someone particularly in their younger years, they want structure, they want authority, as you just said. And it's compounded by this technological moment. We we so often are um, disconnected from community. We live as hyper-individuals. And that's not how we were created. You know, we, we often quote Augustine from the beginning of his confessions when he said, um, Lord, you have formed us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Uh, most of the time, it's it's misquoted. We we usually say our hearts are, but in fact, Augustine used the singular, our heart core, and uh, I we believe he did that purposefully to say we all have this common heart cry, this common longing for communion with God and community with one another. Uh, and so it's a basic need. It's a primal need. And uh, very often, one people will look to the Catholic Church as uh, offering that in ways that are not true of Protestantism. And I think this is a real issue. I mean, I grew up Catholic. If you ask me, Brian, how do you see Catholic priests? I would say, first and foremost, priests are shepherds, right? They are present. I mean, this is my experience. Um, they they. They care for your soul. They nurture you. Generally speaking, that's the mode in which a priest operates. Um, now, is that true of evangelical Protestants? Well, yeah, I know some pastors who are phenomenal shepherds. But there are uh, a number of other models that might occupy the foreground in today's Protestant church. The pastor as the CEO or as the program director, or as the social media influencer, you know what I mean, on and on and on, and not a shepherd. So I think, uh, here's the point, one looks at the Catholic Church and finds there the structure, the oversight, uh, the the life on life, heart to heart, you know, Newman said, uh, core ad core locator, heart speaks to heart, community that, that they desire. And I think that's part of the attraction to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, as it relates to the father hunger. Well, it's one of those things where it seems like the common sort of trope is you think about an evangelical megachurch and it's got the lights 
and it's got the you know rock band and it's got the you know ceo type dynamic ted talk speaker and then everybody's filled with their emotions and it's it's in a warehouse you know something like that and then people say no we want something rooted we want something less individual focus we want something traditional and all that stuff and you hear that critique from catholics or people who want to be catholic and also from very reformed people the reformed answer is and again i'm using kind of like stereotypes but it's like okay it's like stripped down bare it's cold dead lifeless and kind of just you know this kind of um stale type of thing as a reaction to that sort of poppy megachurch thing and the catholics they go well you can actually reject that poppy megachurch thing but still have beauty and 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 you know architecture and, and and paintings and all these types of things and i wonder if there's a psychology there where people don't want to have the reaction of let's just strip everything down they just want to have something that's beautiful but not sort of in a superficial kind of modern sense mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah aesthetics uh and so we get into this matter of tangible grace the experience you have when newman called the beauty of holiness we we desire that because we're embodied creatures uh we're, we're not you know as uh jamie smith puts it just minds on us on a stick we we want to encounter god in ways that address all of our senses and uh and so there is i i think most people recognize a movement toward a more liturgical experience of worship now and that that's toward uh, other traditions as well anglicanism and eastern orthodoxy and uh, yeah i mean uh, i'll be speaking at a church tomorrow another church and just as you said they they meet in a warehouse uh, i i rather doubt they have any crosses displayed so there there's something there about the human soul that wants to be embodied and this relates to the whole matter of how we use technology you know we're we're embedded in our little um narrative our story apart from others and we long to be part of a community and we want to this point for that community to have physical dimensions to it beautiful dimensions what bishop robert baron calls the via pulchritudinis the way of beauty and i i think there we as protestants uh, can and should find ways of keeping our conviction about the word central the the word is our the source of our authority it's what brings transformation, but but doing it in a way that um, enjoys God's creation at the same time. I'm not sure if this was your anecdote or, or Brad, since you guys co-wrote it, but there was an anecdote about two tour groups in Israel, yeah. I believe. It was a yeah. Filipino Catholic tour group and then like a standard Protestant one. And I, I recently was visited Israel uh, in February. And so we went to church at Holy Sepulchre and we went to these different, and it was, it was very interesting because it's like Jerusalem is like cut up into like different like quarters. And then there's like, and then the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic have different claims to different buildings. It was a very fascinating kind of social kind of reality. But you mentioned those two tour groups. There was one in which there was this, a group of Filipino Catholics and they were adoring the Eucharist and, you know, it was about oils and scents and smells and touching and all that stuff. And that wasn't the case for the Protestants. What struck you about that divergence? What was that kind of doing to you as you were experiencing that? Yeah, so I was the one who had that experience and wrote about it there. 
and uh, it was beside the Sea of Galilee. And yeah, in, in one moment, I could see sort of through my left eye, my friend Michael preaching uh, and, and the, the group listening. And then just as you said, uh, these Filipinos on their knees in Eucharistic adoration. And for me, it was it was a, a picture of what distinguishes us, at least as it relates to worship, uh, that we understand the the authority and saving presence of Christ to come through his word, uh, which is preached and taught and uh, imparted through discipleship. And for the Catholic, it's a it's a sacramental act. The real presence of Christ is there and uh, one apprehends that in in different ways of of adoring it and receiving it eucharistically. Uh, so I, I think that elucidates the fundamental difference in our understanding of how we encounter the risen Christ. Well, how do you bridge that gap? I mean, what were they doing that was incorrect and why? Yeah. From a from a Protestant perspective. You know, it's interesting when I I go to a Catholic church once in a while. I was invited to go to uh, Sacred Heart Seminary and preach a couple of years ago. Uh, once a year, they invite a Protestant there to deliver a sermon. So I had that privilege. And it was wonderful. I mean, you know, part of it for me, I think, is nostalgia. I had such a, con a positive experience growing up Catholic uh, that I just enjoy being in that community with the priests, with the nuns, and the different orders represented. And so I, uh, even though I'm I'm a Protestant, um, I I step into that community and I give thanks for so much of what I see. But when it comes to the Eucharist, I'm disturbed, and this is where it becomes interesting, Brian, because that the consecrated host is the source and summit of the Christian life for the Catholic. Uh, that is the focal point, and you don't always get that when you read Protestants who are writing about Catholicism. You know, we, we talk about doctrine, justification and authority and this, and that's fine. But if you're Catholic, it's about the Eucharist. It's about Christ being present. Um, and so for me, I look at that. I look at Eucharistic adoration. I look at, at the mass and I, I, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but for me, it is off-putting. And that's probably an outgrowth of my, my conversion experience, as well as my reading of scripture. Uh, that the word of the cross is foolishness to this word, world, but it is in fact the power of God unto salvation. You know? um, and so I, I have the conviction with Protestantism that that's the, the, the means by which God extends his hand of mercy into this world. That's how, how we hear the voice of Christ. Uh, that's what the Holy Spirit uses to address our sinful hearts with his grace. You know, And so... Yeah, you kind of have to decide <laughs> how do you understand uh, God to extend that presence? And Protestants, of course, are going to say it, it comes through the word. I know Greg Allison, he writes about how in the Catholic mind, matter is like a it's a medium through which grace comes, which. I don't know, I feel like some reform guys would be like, yes, in a qualified sense or something like that. Yeah, but. Th those two pictures, like how would you how would you talk to somebody? You know, let's say you were on on that tour. You go up to one of those Filipino Christians, and you're you know, you're friendly, you're gracious, you're kind to them. But what would you say to them about what they're doing if you were trying to engage apologetically with them? 
Yeah. Oh, that's a great question, Brian. I, I would want to uh, genuinely listen to how that individual is being ministered to, uh, encountering Jesus, what it means to them, how, what they understand to be happening in that moment, and and what's the ground of their faith, you know, their assurance. And and I would ask questions, and my hope is that they would say something about Jesus' death and resurrection being the sole basis for their hope. That wonderful prayer uh, by uh, Teresa Lesu, which appears at the end of the section on merit in the Catholic Catechism. I'll, I'll just paraphrase. Uh, oh, Lord, on that day, uh, may I be judged not according to my uh, my merits, but uh, solely on the basis of, um, of your mercy. Now I'm really paraphrasing. The, the metaphor she invokes there is being clothed with Christ. It's striking. It's really not very different from what the Reformed want to say in their doctrine of imputation, that the the benefits of Christ victory are are attributed to us. That's the reason why God accepts me. So I would want to hear something of that from the Filipino person. And to the extent that I don't, I, I want to share with him my own experience and share scripture to, to help him move closer or her move closer to that understanding. Because that's my that's how salvation comes, is by hearing the word of the cross and the empty tomb and by God's grace, believing it, you know? Um, so uh, you could tell I'm a Protestant uh, at, at heart because I really do believe that needs to be the leading edge. But the way we get there, Brian, should not be hitting people over the head. It should be a humble, honest, let me learn from you. There are, there are insights in the Catholic tradition that I need. Uh, as it relates to prayer and the holiness of God. And in this matter of, of how creation is in some sense suffused with, with God's uh, beauty and wonder. And, um, but it all grows out of uh, a, uh, an explicit gospel that, um, that sees Jesus victory as the, as the basis and the ground of who we are. I think it's good, you know, learning and appreciating things from Catholics. And I think a lot of Catholics have been appreciative, even saying, you know, you mentioned Robert Barron, and he's said some positive things about Luther and, and the importance of the Reformation, and even though he wouldn't go all the way. But there are times when I, in the polemics between Catholics and Protestants, where on the most ecumenical side, it almost feels like becoming Catholic is just going to another denomination. Mm -hmm. That's just a little more high church. Right. But then in the critiques, it actually seems like, no, these, these are almost two different religions. They're almost two different ways of looking at creation, of understanding authority, of understanding history. And that's been disorienting for me reading through this, because on the one hand, it's almost like the walls are permeable. There's so much like, you know, that prayer uh, about, you know, after the section of merit, it's like, oh, wow, a Protestant could say that. That's great. And then there are those permeable walls suddenly become very hard though, when we talk about authority, the papacy, all these types of things. So I'm, I'm trying to like figure out yeah. where the well, actual distance is. I mean, it, it, it begs the question, what is Roman Catholicism? So hmm. on Twitter or X or whatever we call it now, I, I follow James Martin, 
who I happened to be on there yesterday, and he's celebrating the fact that now apparently the Vatican uh, is allowing LGBTQ plus persons to serve as godparents and that they may be uh, baptized. And, you know, his Twitter feed is often uh, clad in rainbows. And he's Mm. a Roman Catholic cleric Mm. who represents a very significant uh, constituency in the Catholic Church. I also follow Robbie George. (laughs) He's quite different. Right. (laughs) Uh, Conservative professor of jurisprudence from Princeton. Uh, They're both Catholic. How do you make sense of that? Well... I think that leads us into some reflection on the what is Roman Catholicism. And I, for one, want to say it's variegated. I don't think the Catholic magisterium is as clear as some Catholics make it out to be. It's imperspicuous. And in fact, you know, um, many Catholics will acknowledge this. Avery Cardinal Dulles on his book on the magisterium, chapter two, says that magisterial conclusions must be understood with reference to not only the, the the doctors of the church, the theologians and the clergy, but also the lay people. In other words, the magisterium needs to be interpreted. You know, So for me as a Protestant, I want to listen to what a particular Catholic is saying. And on the basis of that individual's confession, or maybe a certain parish's confession, determine whether it is inside the pale whether I regard it as inside the pale. And that's important because the answers to that question of whether they're, you know, um, truly looking to Jesus for their salvation will determine how I relate to them, whether I'm doing evangelism or whether I'm doing something more like discipleship, you see. Um, And so I, let me put it this way, Brian, people sometimes ask the question, is the Roman Catholic Church institution genuinely Christian? Is it orthodox? Ask that question in a church and be prepared to, to receive diametrically opposed answers. I've, I've spoken in churches, you know, equipping them to understand uh, the Roman tradition. And I've had elders who have been on diametrically opposed sides of that. And, 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 um, and the reason is this, because some people look at the Catholic church institution in light of the creeds, and they say, yes, it's a your point, it's another denomination, essentially. Others look through the lens of the Reformation and they say, no, at Trent, Rome anathematized sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone is the leading edge of the gospel. Therefore, the Catholic Church can't be orthodox. And it's yes or no. And I'm suggesting that the that question, is it or is it not, is unhelpful. Because A, the Catholic Church is too big and complex. Uh, there's such variety. Again, just check out James Martin and Robbie George. Uh, or, or look at Pope Francis or Raymond Burke, Cardinal Burke. Um, and B, here's the other thing that we often miss. We as Protestants understand genuine Christian faith to be grounded in a relationship with Jesus. We don't understand it in institutional organizational terms. So my assessment of Catholicism as a Protestant won't be on the basis of the worldwide organization or or the Catholic catechism. Um, It will be on the confession that I hear from this person because Jesus saves people. 
Hmm. <laughs> Those people belong to particular communities. I just find that approach so much more helpful. That's really helpful. Along those lines, you talk about the psychological factors of, you know, quote unquote, conversionitis. Um, how would you go about talking with a Catholic? I mean, granted, listening to them, being gracious, wanting to hear their story. But once you kind of establish that connection, how would you move the ball down the field a little bit and talk to them about authority mm -hmm. or, um, you know, beauty? How would you start to say, here are some ways that Protestants have what you're looking for, so to speak? Yeah. Well, we both look to Scripture as God's Word. Now, the Catholic Church understands God's Word to also include sacred tradition, uh, together proceeding from this, the same divine wellspring. Um, but I think there's much to gain in sitting down with a Catholic friend and opening the Bible and asking that person to, ex to, to teach you, to help you, and, and, and genuinely so. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to sound like this is overly strategic. We have a lot to learn. We see through a dim glass, and our Catholic friends have insights to teach us. So let's take that posture of a humble learner and look at God's Word together and talk it through. And uh, allow that person to give an answer for the ecclesial hope within. And I want to be open to changing my mind. You know, I think that's the right approach. Uh, when we go with, when I, when I was converted 25 years ago, I, I read these books on Catholicism, you know, which on one side of the page, they lined up. Here's what the Bible teaches. On the other side, here's what the Church of Rome teaches. They might have called it the errors of Rome. And the method was just take the Bible and assert it so as to prove the other side wrong. That, that doesn't work. you know. Um, so methodologically, relationally, I think that's the right way to approach it. Um, and then another thing you asked about the psychological. Don't be afraid to acknowledge that there are strengths in the Catholic tradition. I, I was in Italy this summer. You walk into some of those churches, and it's awe-inspiring. And yeah, so we get to the the Mary thing, you know, and we're not going to resonate with that, and that's disturbing. But there's a lot there that communicates the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of God. I think we can acknowledge that, and that that sort of honest, vulnerable, transparent uh, interaction will go a long way in helping our Catholic friends understand what we're trying to say. What about for a Protestant thinking about Catholicism? And there, so some of the classic kind of things that start to cause people to think about this is there's no table of contents. There's no inspired table of contents for the Bible. So how do you know which books are in, which books are out? That this, that's one of them. And uh, the other one would be more of the aesthetic thing of like, it's too much about, you know, Protestantism is too much about sort of this emotive state versus uh, matter actually being a medium for grace to be given. And you're talking again to somebody who's a Protestant, not not a Catholic, and they're feeling those psychological pulls. How would you speak to them about authority, like with the canon? Or how would you speak to them about beauty if they're feeling the pull of Rome? 
I'll get to the canon question in just a second. Um, you mentioned Greg Allison, and I meant to say this. You know, Greg is appropriating the work of Leonardo di Chirico, who's a an evangelical scholar in Rome. I think Leo is very helpful in this regard. And Greg and I use this in the book that we co-authored together called The Unfinished Reformation. And there's two axioms there. One is continuous incarnation, the notion that the risen Jesus uh, manifests his presence in the church, what von Balthasar called prolongation. That's a helpful way to get your mind around how Catholic Catholics um, understand and apply authority. Um, it is it is the person of Jesus who's extending that through the one holy Catholic apostolic church. The other is this nature grace interdependence, and that's what you're referring to, Brian. You know, and uh, Protestantism has categories for that. I spoke at a Anglican conference not long ago, and many of the priests told me that's why they became Anglican. This very reason, because in the liturgy and in other ways in creation in general, they recognize God to be expressing himself. Not in the same way that the Church of Rome understands it, but but uh, meaningfully nonetheless. With regard to the canon, uh, my question to the Catholic friend who poses that would be, well, how do you understand the Hebrew scriptures to have come together? There was no council. Council of Jamnia, Jamnia in the latter part of the first century was later. We believe that the, the Hebrew canon already existed during the time of Jesus. Uh, there was no magisterium that conferred authority upon it. No, God inspired these authors, and there was a certain character to these writings that attested to their divine origins. And in the, the mystery of providence, they came together and they were recognized as God's word. And we would say, as that was true of the so-called Old Testament, uh, that is the case in the New Testament as well. Talking about the nature grace thing, tease out a little bit more, because what is the difference between how an Anglican, even a high church Anglican perhaps, would look at nature grace versus a, a Roman Catholic? Yeah. As I listen, and I'm not Anglican, uh, I have great appreciation for the Anglican tradition. As I listen to my friends there, that I hear them talking in terms of uh, liturgy. And so um, when we come together, it matters. The forms that we use matter, that they bear witness to the character of God. And so there's an appreciation for aesthetics. And there's not what you, you find in the Puritan tradition, most clearly, uh, uh, a a reaction to those physical forms um driven by a desire to foreground the word and, and that's how it is right so much of church history is a reaction it's a pendulum swing and so uh we understand that's that's what's going on with puritanism um god speaks through this word so i'm going to dress in a geneva gown to make the point that it's my study of this word that enables me to preach and i'm going to surround myself with a, a a worship space that that is simple and plain so that the word itself shines. Um, I, I hear the Anglican tradition saying, no, 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 we music and it's not just Anglicans, Lutherans would be in the same category. Uh, music and art and the way you know our clerical attire, all of that says something about who we are in Christ, reflecting his beauty. And uh, you know, 
That's different from the Roman understanding, however, in that it's not a means of grace in the same way. It's not transubstantiation. It's it's not the sacramentals that prepare you to receive the host so that your soul is renovated by the ingesting of the real presence of Christ. That would be the difference. So if there's more of a, there's like a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a thicker conception of how matter, like, like, I guess in the Anglican tradition, is it still sort of the music and all its stuff? It's like, I'm still trying to figure out how that's different. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's still a little fuzzy. Yeah. Well, that's what you get from a non-denom guy yeah. talking about Anglicanism. But right. uh, so I, I hesitate to go too much further lest I misrepresent, but I'll just tell you in our church, we have stained glass. Uh, we periodically wear Geneva gowns uh, to remind people that we're reformed. And, um, and we do our best in all of our communication to, to do so with excellence. And so uh, I think there's a principal difference there uh, that we, we see creation as a medium through which God speaks, not infallibly, uh, not redemptively in the same way, but it, it bears witness to who he is. So you've talked about there's psychological, social, you know, the, wanting a sense of authority and tradition, all these things that are understandable kind of factors about why some Protestants would convert to Catholicism. But you wrote the book, obviously, because you don't think they should. Right. So. What would you say are the reasons why Protestants shouldn't convert? Yeah. So if we look through the list, uh, you know, father, hunger, holiness, deficit disorder, uh, the inner ring, uh, in regard to theology, we talk about quest for certainty, being in touch with history, uh, this matter of tangible grace. And then sociologically, the, the division, the, the, the multiplicity of denominations. The shallowness that you sometimes encounter in Big Eva, Big Evangelicalism, in the warehouse church, you know. And we're trying to say those are real issues. And uh, it's an opportunity for us to, to do business with our beliefs and practices that are uh, out of sync with the Christian vision. But you have in Protestantism the resources to answer those questions and find what you're looking for. So for example, uh, division. Um, Catholic friends often point out that there's so many different denominations. Surely this is not what God intends. How do you give an answer for the ecclesial hope within? Well, uh, we have to understand that Catholics and Protestants are using different criteria to identify the church. Or the Catholic uh, extending from this this notion of continuous incarnation that we talked about earlier, there is the belief that the the real church will belong to the same institution. So Catholics everywhere, Catholic churches are are in communion with one another under the headship of a bishop, and you know, and they look similar liturgically. For the Protestant, though, because we look to the Word as the source of our authority, it's it's not the organizational dimensions. It's the message of the gospel. And so you could drive down Main Street and have five different churches there. You can have uh, a Baptist church and 
a Bible church and Presbyterian church. Uh, and inasmuch as they are preaching the gospel of Scripture, they enjoy real unity, uh, a depth of unity that can't possibly be created by an organization or an institution. They're united in Christ for all of eternity, you see. And so uh, that's just one example of how we need to step back and, and realize the difference in the way Catholics and Protestants think about this, different criteria, and and recognize that there are answers to these real questions. It would seem like the idea is if you convert, you get the unity in the churches, you get the connection to history, you get the authority structure you crave, the inner ring, all that stuff. But what are the things that people don't realize they're also getting that you would caution them against? Yeah. I was just watching a video the other day by Cardinal Raymond Burke, who was talking about the, the synod on synodality. He's not happy. And uh, actually, a lot of uh, conservative Christians are not happy with the What pope. is that? Sorry. This? So this is a, a synod that recently concluded in Rome, and um, there was concern among conservatives that it was pushing a, a liberal agenda as okay. it relates to LGBTQ concerns and um, ordaining females to the priesthood and that kind of thing. Um, and this is a real issue among conservative Catholics. We we homeschool our children. So we're part of these communities that often have a sizable balance of evangelical Protestants and Catholics. And they're our friends. And we talk to them. We've developed enough rapport over the years that they're honest with us. And they're in a real quandary because as a matter of conviction, they they look to the Pope as the vicar of Christ, but they're intensely frustrated with this Pope. What do you do? See? And um, and so that's a that's a that's a real issue that you you might not think about if you just listen to the Catholic apologists. You know, uh, uh, it's it, it it may look the same, but I would say that you have the the same sort of diversity in Roman Catholic circles as you have in Protestantism. You have the whole spectrum from ultra conservative Tridentine Latin Mass Catholics to to those who are exceedingly liberal and are uh, not at all concerned with submitting to magisterial authority. So, yeah, that's reality. And that shouldn't surprise us because people are people and we're, we're going to encounter the same obstacles wherever we go. Um, so I think that the basis of our, dis our decision ought to be on uh, Christian revelation. You know, how do we give an answer for the biblical hope within us? And uh, and look at church history. How do we trace the lines of Christian teaching as it unfolds through the centuries? I, for one, have really enjoyed Gavin Ortlund, you know, uh, who has a YouTube channel now and is uh, is working as an apologist for that very reason. Because people often invoke the, the church fathers, but Let's be honest, few people have actually read the Church Fathers. <laughs> so, you know, listen to people who've done that work and can serve as a helpful guide. I, I think that's where we need to focus if we're seriously considering conversion. You mentioned a few factors in your own sort of conversion story. I think you said uh, grace over guilt, mm -hmm. um, uh, rule, uh, religion over rules. I, I, think, I think the last one was about work kind of being. Yeah. 
all of the priesthood believers. Can you tease that out a little bit? Maybe, you know, in conclusion, if you, if you want to give a case for telling the person who's, you know, compelled by Rome, hey, consider these great things about Protestantism. Yeah. How would you use those to, to tease that out? Yeah, I'll do it in reverse. So um, the idea that we're all given gifts, Ephesians 4, and uh, wherever we are, God wants us to use them and make an eternal impact. Uh, the person who is in the marketplace uh, or working at home with children uh, is doing uh, work for the kingdom that is every bit as important as what I'm doing as an ordained minister. You know, we believe that as Protestants. Uh, it's not to denigrate the preaching of the word, but it is to say we all minister the word in some way. That's our calling. Um, and, and so, yeah, that that realization has been important to a, a lot of people who've converted to Protestantism. The idea of um, relationship over rules. Uh, what does it mean to walk with God? I used to work as a professional fundraiser in the Catholic Church. I tell this story. And we were raising $25 million. I'm a newly minted evangelical, but I'm raising money in the Catholic Church. That was my job. Uh, $25 million in the diocese. So you know how this goes. You have a capital campaign. This was for Catholic charities and uh, seminary uh, endowment and so forth. And you you go to the wealthy people first. And then with with some money already raised, you approach everyone else. Well, there we were at the breakers. And uh, it was a fine meal, live music, steak was on the menu. And then we realized the problem. It was a Friday during Lent. And we were the Catholic Church serving steak. I don't know how we overlooked this. So all of the directors of our fundraising firm huddled up. Uh, we were nervous. What do we do? And then the bishop approached us and he said, I understand the problem. Thankfully, as the bishop, I have the authority to declare a special dispensation for eating meat on a Lenten Friday. And if there's ever uh, a time for such a provision, surely it's now. So I watched him ascend the dais and he made the declaration. And he prayed and within minutes, we're, we're enjoying our steak. And uh, so there I am as a newly <laughs> minted evangelical watching this thing. How fascinating uh, the, as it relates to rules you know, and stipulations. And, uh, and so, uh, and then the third reason, grace over guilt. So many of us who were raised Catholic have a notion of God in which he's, his arms are folded, his toe is tapping, and he's waiting for us to get our act together. And uh, for me, it was that day when I, when I heard the good news that I am accepted by God, uh, not on the basis of anything I do, uh, Fully and finally, at the end of the day, is what Jesus has done. The Savior who died and was raised from the dead and now lives. And so I think that's the message we need to provide perspective when we are considering who we are in Christ. I can imagine a lot of the Catholic apologists, they would hear those three and they'd be like, that's Catholicism. You know, like we have the sacramental system, gets rid of our guilt. Uh, we certainly think that people's ordinary work is important. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> I wonder if, you know, rules, religion over, or uh, uh, relationship over rules, if they're just like, 
is that antinomianism? I mean, that this is where it gets again fuzzy for me because I yep. feel like a lot of Catholics would be like, that's a Catholic straw man that we reject these things. But there's something fundamental where I think what you're saying is true. They there's some difference in which you can say that. And there's a there's a so yeah, I mean, how would you respond yep. to the to the yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm you know? I'm really glad you said that. Let me hasten to add that all of those concerns apply to Protestantism as a Christian tradition. Like we have legalistic churches, right? Sure. I mean, we're, we all stumble over that at some point. Um, and we often fail to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to, to apply our gifts, right? And we, we fail to rely on the sufficiency of Christ. And instead we look to our works. Goodness, I do it all the time. So this is, this is a human problem. I think the evangelical Protestantism relying on the Bible provides a clearer, more compelling, more thoroughgoing answer to those. Let me give you an example. Last week, a friend of mine died, Nancy. Um, I visited her and John at, when she was on hospice. Nancy was a member of our church. John was Roman Catholic. I met John 20 years ago, and we became fast friends, Polish Catholic. Uh, so this was a real poignant moment, sitting beside uh, Nancy, she's no longer lucid. John's in front of me. Um, I haven't seen John a lot, but whenever I see him, it's always warm, sincere. And um, he said to me, Chris, how do I know I'll see Nancy again? I have no assurance. You know, when they asked Pope John Paul whether he'll be in heaven, he said, I hope so. Goodness, if that's true for the Pope, what chance do, do, do I have? And I said, John, you can be assured that you're a child of God because you've trusted in Jesus. And God raised his son from the dead and seated him at the right hand of his throne to make that statement that his sacrifice was accepted and you have embraced that. And now you're a child of God. And I, I read Romans 8. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Catholic Church struggles to say that. It doesn't really have a doctrine of assurance. Uh, the Bible does, I would say, if I may say that uh, respectfully. Um, and that's what we need in those moments when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a wonderful story. I mean, do you think there's a respect in which, and you can do this with anything, not just Roman Catholicism, but whenever you're in a particular situation and you know the ins and outs, you know the good and the bad, the really good and the really bad of it, the grass can always look greener on the other side. Right. And right. right. Is that something you've experienced with people who have yeah. converted to Catholicism or? Or to Protestantism. Protestantism is not the kingdom. Mama Mia. We all have, <laughs> this is the, we live in the right. city of man. There's a, there's a real not yet to the kingdom. And so wherever you find yourself ecclesially, uh, be there fully, use your gifts, be gracious. I just wrote this book on the Beatitudes, you know, uh, poverty of spirit, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Yes, but realize the, the kingdom is yet to come. And uh, in the meantime, we we persevere. But do you think it would be harmful if like, one of your congregants said, I'm thinking about becoming Roman Catholic? Mm -hmm. would, would, you, would that be a pastoral issue for you, as opposed to them being saying, I think I want to become Baptist or Presbyterian. I mean, yeah, it would. It would be more problematic than someone becoming, say, Methodist or going to some other denomination. 
not to pick on our Methodist brothers. That's just what came to mind. Um, because here's a couple of reasons. One, the way in which someone grows in their faith is by sitting under biblical exposition. And that just doesn't happen in a Catholic parish. It's the truth. Um, and so I would be concerned about their sanctification. And then secondly, there there are fundamental errors in the Catholic tradition from, from my point of view, from our point of view, as it relates to authority, uh, the papacy, uh, as it relates to traditions of superstition, uh, as it relates to salvation. What is the ultimate ground by which, upon which I am accepted by God? It's not meritorious works as Rome teaches. It is the perfect and complete work of Christ for us. So, yeah, I, I would be concerned and would want to pastorally address those and, and hopefully help that person recognize what they're getting into. And what would be some of the things that you would try to get them to see with regarding that? I mean, you mentioned you don't want to just beat them over the head, but... You know. I think I would share stories like the, the the Kowalski story I just shared and say, look, you know, I'm not anti-Catholic and and here are the strengths of the Catholic tradition, which I value. I want to learn from them genuinely. So I read Catholics, I listen to Catholics, um, but I have some real concerns in the, in, in these two areas, particularly authority and salvation. And here's why I'm concerned. And in answering that why question, I would share some anecdotes when you're in the Valley and you need assurance, where will you find it? It's it's harder to do that if you're going to be a serious-minded Catholic who believes mm. what the magisterium teaches. That would be my approach. But we all we can do is minister God's word. Our, our work is not magisterial as Protestant pastors. It's ministerial. So I want to ask good questions. I want to extend love. I want to use God's word. And I want to pray. Awesome. Very well said. Well, Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining us, for sharing uh, some of your anecdotes, for sharing your thoughts, and for your work. We're going to put a link to some of his writings in the show notes, uh, so you can access those and buy them and check them out. They'll be a good resource for you. But uh, Chris, this was a great conversation. Appreciate it so much. Thanks, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Brian. You guys are interested in supporting the podcast, make sure you subscribe on Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. Also, share this with your friends. We have a website, that'llpreach.io. You can share that link. If you've got friends who are thinking about Roman Catholicism, if you yourself are considering uh, what it means to be Protestant or Catholic, hopefully this can be a helpful resource. So please uh, feel free to share it with uh, people you think you would appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week.